0: We are continuing this morning to look at Paul's letter to the Galatians. If you have your Bible with you, turn to uh, that book, Galatians chapter 3 in the New Testament. While you're turning there, while you're turning to Galatians 3, let me remind you where we've been. Uh, where we were, particularly last week, Paul has been addressing the false teaching that has been taught, that has been promulgated uh, there in Galatia, that the teaching that the law was a prerequisite for salvation that you had to be a faithful Jew, that you had to faithfully keep the whole law before you could come to Christ. Last week in particular, we saw as Paul compared the law of Moses specifically to the promise from, uh, given to Abraham, the promised covenant given to Abraham, the fundamental differences between those two things and how they interacted. Even more, how the law could not even modify the promise, still less could it overthrow the promise. The promise takes precedence without question, but of course that leaves us with a dilemma because what do we do with the law? If the law can't save us and the law can't take precedence over the promise, what do we do now with the law? If the promise comes wholly without the law, and of course it does, then what's the point of the law at all? Why did God give us the law? That's the natural next question for anyone who spent more than five minutes studying the Old Testament. We understand that the life of ancient Israel, the, the, under, the plan of, of Israel under the Old Testament was governed by the law in many ways. And so if the law wasn't what saved us, wasn't what identified the Israelites, the people of God, why did it come? What value does it have? And so that's the question that Paul is going to answer in our passage this morning. I will say up front, this is one of the most densely argued passages in all of Paul's writing. And Paul is not known for being intellectually slack. So we're going to need, in addition to needing the Spirit to restrain our sin, we're going to need Him to open our mind that we might understand. So if you're able, please stand while I pray. Remain standing as I read from Galatians chapter 3. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we come to your word because only in your word can we find your truth. And yet, Father, if we do not have your spirit restraining our sin, opening our mind, softening our hearts, we will certainly turn aside. We will take your word, which is true, and we will twist it to mean what we want it to mean. And so, Lord, we pray, pour your spirit out on us this morning. Glorify your name and not mine in the reading and the preaching of your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, I'm reading from Galatians 3. I'm going to read starting in 15. We're actually going to be focused on 19 to 22 this morning, Uh, but I'm going to read a little bit longer than that to give us the full context. This is God's word. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by law, then it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. In verse 19, why then the law? The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Be seated. I want you to make a list. Not literally, don't write it down on paper, you can make it mentally, that's fine. But mentally pull out a piece of paper, pull out a pencil, and get ready to make a list. Are you ready? Make a list of every sin that you've committed in the last week. Every sin. Every time you got unreasonably angry over something. Every time you berated someone's intelligence in your head or online, or out loud, for a foolish opinion, for an inability to drive, for anything else. Every time you undressed someone with your mind, every time you thought, I don't need anyone else, I can do this myself. Every time you wished you could just have what that person has. Every time you wasted time on the clock, Every time you allowed someone to be misrepresented or misrepresented them yourself. Every time in the last 60 seconds that you thought, oh, she really needs to repent of that, or oh, he really needed to hear that, instead of, I need to repent. Now, do you have that list? Do you have it in your mind? Do you got it pictured? Given the polarizing events of this week, it would be hard to avoid some of those, right? But polarizing events or not across all demographics and over consistently over the years I would be willing to bet that most of you maybe all of you fell into one of two categories one of two very common responses the first by far the more common is to think someone something along these lines well i know i sin i know there are things that i've done that are wrong i got to let me oh yeah there's there's that thing that i did on monday Oh, oh, yeah, and there's that one other thing. Oh, well, and there's all of Wednesday, so yeah. Okay, I've got my list. I'm good. I can answer the question. If that's you, you're in good company. That is the most common response by a fair margin. You may give intellectual assent to the idea of total depravity, the idea that sin touches everything. But that's pretty hard to wrap your heart around. You may get your head around it, but that's hard to wrap your heart around, right? In practice, this type of person, this response, tends to think, I'm a pretty good person. Certainly I'm better than, you know, your average run-of-the-mill Joe. I do a better job. I'm holier than most people. I don't do it perfectly, but I'm doing okay. Maybe you even have some sort of vague sense of guilt that you're not really fully aware of your sin, you don't really think about it uh, a lot. In, In your own head, if nowhere else, you can admit that you probably need to be more conscious about killing the sin in your life, but mostly you just don't think about it. For you, for that response, the struggle is recognizing, is appreciating on a gut level the full depth and weight of your sin, recognizing that your little white lie told purely to protect someone's feelings required the death of the second person of the Trinity to pay for. On the other hand, there's a smaller group probably uh, that before I had finished asking the question, you were already on page three. You know without a doubt, you don't need to be convinced that you're a worm. You don't need to know with beyond anything you know that you're the worst person in the room without a shadow of a doubt you know it you know all of your sins even if you hide it well and you don't ever let anybody else ever know it you know maybe that attitude is the legacy of a particular egregious sin from a long time ago that you feel like can never be fixed or forgiven maybe that's Someone who should have loved you, who nevertheless made sure that you knew that they did not, that they thought you were a terrible person. Maybe it's just a personality quirk. But for you, the struggle isn't recognizing either that you sin or just how terrible sin is. For you, the struggle is accepting mercy and grace. Now, those two responses seem diametrically opposed to each other, don't they? Absolutely as far opposite as you could get. But here's the thing. At the end of the day, both of those responses depend on the same lie. Both of those responses depend on the same lie. Each one believes, I can keep the law. I can keep the law. The first response thinks, I can and I do mostly keep the law. The second Thinks, I can, and therefore I should, but I don't at all, and so I'm awful, but I can keep the law. Both responses are built on the assumption that the law is the fundamental means by which you attain righteousness and approval from God. Each one is our pride, believing, I can do it, I can earn my place before god now theologically speaking we know that's not the case right none of us if we if it ever rose to the level of conscious thought we'd be like nope that's not right run away but that's how we live that's the the lie that's buried in our subconscious on some level subconsciously at the very least we're thinking that god gave the law to be obeyed therefore we can and must obey it There's a lie buried in there, so let's drag that assumption out into the light of conscious thought and fix it, correct it. As I said earlier, Paul is following the logical progression of his argument in this text, answering the question that would have been preying on the minds of the Galatians at that point. Even though they were from a Gentile background, anyone who knows the history of God's people knows how important the law was to that history. But Paul's just said that the promise completely supersedes it. That the provisions of the promise almost seem to make the law completely moot. As it was understood, the law was, if you keep the law, then the Lord will provide these blessings. If you don't, he will throw you out of the land and you won't get the blessings. Seems to make, in that understanding, seems to make the promise contingent on keeping the law. But Paul has just spent pretty significant amount of time arguing that the promise supersedes the law completely and your keeping of the law is not how you get the promise. That depends solely on the character of God. So what do we do with the law? What purpose does it serve? Now, just as a, a side note, I, I mentioned before this is one of the most densely argued passages in all of Paul's letters. One of the reasons for that is because Galatian, the Galatian region there is... Paul planted the church there. He hadn't been there, probably hadn't been gone more than a year. And so he's writing to people who are familiar with him, familiar with his teaching. And a lot of what we see in here is one phrase that refers to paragraphs and even whole whole talks where he's explaining all of this and he just kind of refers to it in this passage. And so we've got very compressed teaching. But in God's providence, this is not the only letter we have. And we do have Romans where Paul wrote to a church where he'd never been. And explained himself far more clearly. And so we can look at Romans and understand better what's going on here. And just the reason that I bring that up, this is one of the basic principles of understanding Scripture. We believe that God provides in Scripture clarity as to all things that are required for life and godliness. It is, it's taught somewhere in Scripture clearly. But we also know that not every passage is equally clear. And some passages are downright hard. And so the basic rule is, if you're struggling with one passage, don't first go to a, Bible, a study Bible and the notes therein. Don't first go to a commentary. Don't first go to the, the sermon of a famous preacher. Those are all valuable tools, but don't go there first. The first place you go if you're struggling with a passage, go to Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. God's Word will explain what is needful to know somewhere in there. If this passage isn't clear, let's look for one that is clear. Basic principle for understanding how we uh, approach God's word. But let's, let's look at our passage. Why the law? What was the purpose? Why was it given at all? We talked last week about the reality that the law is not a codicil added on to the promise, giving stipulations under which God would give the promise blessings. But remember that Paul is responding specifically to false teaching here false teachers who were saying that the law was absolutely necessary for Christians as a part of their salvation. And Paul instead says it was given because of sin. Specifically, it was given to accomplish other purposes than the promise. Subordinate and supplementary purposes, to be sure, but other purposes than the promise was given. Verse 21, Paul is as clear as it is possible to be in any language that the law and the promise are not contrary to each other, that they're not twin poles fighting for supremacy as if there's the law on one side and grace on the other and you've got to pick one and live under it, that they in fact go together. The law is wholly subordinate to the promise and complements it. How? How does that make any sense? What what is the purpose? Historically, theologians have recognized three chief uses or purposes for the law uh, uh, after Christ's resurrection, in the time of Christ, we we would say. Uh, the The first two are pretty nearly universally recognized, uh, apply to all people, Christians and non-everywhere. The third use applies only to Christians, requires a little bit more nuance. We'll talk about that third use probably next week. Uh, This morning, we're going to focus on those first two that are, as I say, pretty universally accepted. Uh, And the interesting thing, though, is that they sound directly contradictory. They don't actually contradict each other, but they sound like it at, at first glance. So what are they? What are the two uses of the law that we're talking about? The law came first to restrain sin second the law came to increase sin wait what how's that work how can it restrain sin and increase sin at the same time as i say they sound contradictory you you see what i mean about that when we read in verse 19 that the law was added because of transgressions there's two ways we can read that and i think paul actually means both uh, the first is that sin had increased in the world and in Israel in particular, and therefore God added the law. This is precisely what we see in the Old Testament record, right? Israel, after generations in Canaan and even more generations in, Isra- in Egypt, rather, uh, had learned from the inhabitants of those places to pursue idolatry, to pursue living out all sorts of wicked practices. The people of God look pretty much exactly the same as all the surrounding nations. Sin increased. Now remember at Sinai, as God was meeting with Moses, as that was happening, what was going on at the bottom of the hill? They are making an idol. They crafted a golden calf and Aaron said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt while Moses is up on the mountain. So one purpose of the law was to restrain their sin. And this makes sense. If there's a law, we we recognize this principle. If there is a law, if it exists at all for most of us, most of the time, the fact that a law exists leads us to obey the law. Particularly if there's a punishment enforced on those who break it, you're going to try not to break it. Simple logic, really. I don't want to get punished, so I'm going to not do the thing that would get me punished. The existence of a law at all acts to restrain sin simply by existing. In other words, the law exists to prevent a bad situation from getting worse. On the other hand, the law was also intended to increase sin. How can that be if its primary purpose was to restrain or decrease sin? Again, go back to that clause in verse 19. The law was added because of sin. Now we've said it could be referring backward to the existing conditions to designed to restrain them, but it could also be looking forward, added for the purpose of transgressions. It was added to make an already bad situation drastically worse by provoking sin. And we see this in Scripture as well. Remember Romans 7, Paul draws on his own experience of the 10th commandment. Uh, You shall not covet. He draws on his own experience to show that the law had actually caused covetousness to spring up even more in him. The sin was already there, but the law was like throwing kerosene on a fire. Made it grow exponentially. But why would God give the law if the purpose was increasing sin? He hates sin. He must destroy sin. So why would He give a law that would make sin increase? It doesn't seem to make sense. As I said, this is a tightly argued, tightly reasoned argument. So follow me here. One parallel passage to this is from Romans five. In that passage, when Paul says that the law was added, he uses a word that is somewhat poetic. Literally means came in by a side road. Um, the sense here is not so much that the law snuck in by a back way, although Paul does use that kind of that nuance and plays on the word there a little bit in other places. Uh, but the sense here is something rather. Kind of like Legacy Parkway down in Salt Lake City. If you've ever driven to the airport, you know that if you take the interstate all the way there and then cut across on the other interstate, it's gonna take you about six hours because the traffic's terrible. Or you can cut across on Legacy and you can get to the same destination It was added to increase the ability of the road to handle, but to get to the same place. Uh, It's similar to inner loop interstates that go around the city center of most big cities. The interstate is the main road, but it gets super busy. It gets choked with traffic. And so there's a side road that goes to the same place. And that's the important part. One commentator put it this way. uh, The main road is the covenant of promise, inviolate, inviolate, irrevocable. The law has the character of something additional, a side road intended to carry extra traffic and excess baggage, and designed not to lead to a separate destination or even a separate route to the same destination. You've heard the many ways up the same mountain idea. That's not what this is. But rather to point its travelers back to the main road. The goal, the intent of the law was always only and always to point to the one to whom the promises were actually given to the singular offspring who would receive them by right to Christ himself the son so while the law was intended to decrease sin in the interactions within Israel at the same time it was also intended to provoke sin so as to reveal the depth of the depravity of the people of God, to, so that they would see just how bad they actually are. I read a story uh, this week about a couple traveling with their young son, three, four years old. After a long time driving, late in the evening now, uh, they pulled up in the middle of, the, the middle of nowhere, really, to a stoplight, uh, and the light illuminated the windshield. The brightness of the traffic light revealed all of the dirt and the dead bugs and the insects and all of that gunk that you get on the windshield when you've been driving a long time. And their son said, look how dirty! And the couple didn't really think much about it until a moment later when the light changed and they drove on back into the darkness, away from the light. And as soon as they re-entered the darkness, they could no longer see the mess on the windshield. And their son quickly piped up and said, Now the glass is clean. Was it clean? Of course not. You just couldn't see it. Before the law came, the dirt within us hid under darkness. Before the law came, it was possible for us to believe that we are basically good people. But when God gave the law, the light shined on the windshield of our hearts and revealed the filth of the sin that we had collected on our journey the law then is a light that shows us how sinful we really are it cannot cleanse us it cannot make us whole but it does starkly highlight the true situation of our souls the true state of our souls showing us our need for a savior Verse 22, Paul says that the Scripture or the law, which the, that's basically two words for the same thing there, uh, virtually interchangeable. The law, the Scripture, imprisoned everything under sin. Now this word picture, while it certainly can refer to an individual who's shackled and in a six-by-six six room, uh, more commonly was used about an army besieging a city, blocking all possible exits. There's no way out. You can't get clear of it. That idea seems to be closer to what Paul is actually driving at here. In that time, the teachers of Israel, the Pharisees in particular, remember, of whom Paul was one, the the Pharisees in particular taught that the law was a kind of a fence protecting the holy people of Israel from all of the filth out there in the world. The law was a fence that kept out the bad and kept the good in. That might be a familiar mental picture to you. I was taught that as a kid. That was something that I was, an image that was used for me as I was growing up. But Paul takes that idea and turns it up to 11 and kind of spins it around on him. Yes, it's offense, he says, but it's not offense to keep the evil things out, the evil people away from you. You who are holy. Rather, it is a fence to keep you who are wicked inside with no possibility of escape. And that sounds super harsh, doesn't it? But there's an important goal in mind. Remember, from, the be- from beginning to end, the Scripture presents one coherent theme. There's one point to all of the Scriptures. The sovereign unfolding of God's purposes in Jesus Christ to the praise of his glory. That's the point. That's the whole of the scripture summed up in one sentence. The goal of all of it is the sovereign work of God in the life of death and resurrection of Jesus to the glory of his grace. Why then are we being besieged? Because we have got to accept the conclusion that sin is deadly and that we cannot get out at all. We cannot escape the consequences of our sin on our own, but only can, the only way to get away from it is for the besieging army to let us out. By being released from the consequences by God himself, purely of grace. Look at verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the central point. God is not going to let us go wandering off on our own to die in a ravine without hope. Rather than allowing that, he pinned us up by the law so that we could not get out besieged us in the citadel of our pride and our independence with no escape so that we might finally recognize the futility of our pride, the futility of our independence, and be pointed to the only true hope. But what happens? We've been pinned up under the law for long enough that we start to think that the law is the point. That's the way that it should be. In the film The Shawshank Redemption, Red, Ellis Boyd Redding, Morgan Freeman's character, Red has spent most of his life, honestly, wasting away uh, in prison because of a reckless act of violence that he committed as a teenager. After 40 years of incarceration, Red finally receives his parole so that he can go out and enjoy the remaining years of his life, the freedom for which he has longed for... Four decades. However, he can't free himself from the ingrained habits of prison life. He can't free himself from asking for permission each time he needs to go to the restroom. He's become institutionalized. This newfound life scares him because he's grown accustomed to the structure behind bars. Imprisonment became safe for red he didn't have to exercise his own decision making someone else did the thinking for him and now on the outside he faces a prospect far more daunting and terrifying than incarceration freedom red confesses that he thinks about various ways to break his parole and return to the security of the prison cell he sums up the dilemma in one line it is a terrible thing to live in fear. When we are caught up in legalism, we are exactly the same as red. We are scared to death of the freedom that grace brings. It is so much easier to retreat to our cell of the law. Of do this, don't do that. Keep the thing, make it all right, make your life look perfect. Then at least you've got that checklist. Checklist. You can know at the end of the day, I did what I was supposed to do, and I didn't do what I wasn't supposed to do. Black and white categories. We long for the clarity of that. But the do's, the don'ts, the law was never an end in itself. It was never the purpose. We cannot earn life by keeping the law. No matter how good at it you get, you can't earn life by keeping the law, because you cannot keep the law. Yes, the existence of the law restrains some of the outward ugliness in us, some of the behaviors that other people will recognize as wrong, well, usually anyway, but even when the existence of the law makes us behave better, it doesn't change our hearts. It can't change our hearts. Though I may not murder people, I don't go around stabbing people and shooting people, I'm more than willing to slaughter them and their reputation in my thoughts. I may not steal things, but I will certainly covet and I will, whatever I imagine that life might be. Not the real thing, but just what I envision it. The law reveals to me just how atrociously bad I am. Still more so when Jesus expounded on it. When he said, you have heard it said you shall not kill, but I say anyone who says you fool is guilty of the law. It's not just about our outward actions, it's about our hearts, our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, what we purpose in our hearts, even if it never makes it to the level of our words or our actions. The law came in to condemn. The law cannot give life. But it was never intended to do so. It was never intended to give life. It was always intended to point us to the need for one who would keep the law on our behalf, who was able to keep the whole law, who would earn righteousness by right, who would keep the law perfectly for us who would pay the penalty the law demanded for our sin on our behalf. The law hems us in tighter and tighter until we have no choice and no hope save in the finished work of Christ alone. Given freely. We are besieged. We are in that city tied up where we can't get out until we turn to Him and He gives us An open door freely invites us into Christ. If today you feel weighed down by your sin, hemmed in by the strictures of the law, of custom, of morality, and the way that you're supposed to behave, if you feel unable to bear up under it any longer, be encouraged. You are feeling exactly what you should be feeling. You are feeling what the law was designed to make you feel. Stop trying to earn by the law what the law has never been able to give. Turn to Christ. Accept the record of his perfection given to you. And give him the record of your complete failure at every point of the law your entire life without Exception. And when you receive Christ, when you receive the record of His perfection, you get with it the delight of the God who adopts you in Christ, who in fact sent His Son to take your place. Cease striving after the wind, rest in the Savior. It's the only place rest can be found. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so prone to turn to our own way. We are so quick to think that we can earn righteousness, that we can earn favor with you somehow. We beg you, kill that thought in us. Show us our sin so clearly that we have no choice but to turn to you and rest in your grace. And having done that, Lord, pour your grace, lavish your grace on us, that your name would be praised as we are made more and more in the image of the one who took our place. Let us fix our eyes on him. Let us be remade in his image, Lord. Glorify your name in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship him now. If you're able, please stand.